Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal, where we're proud to support some of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I speak with California legislator Blanca Rubio, who chairs the New Democrats in the State Assembly. Blanca talks about her highlights from the most recent legislative session, why it's so important to support business as we recover from the pandemic, and what it's like being one half of the first ever sister duo serving together in the California legislature. Blanca also talks about her own incredible and inspiring path into public service, having been undocumented and deported with her family when she was a child, and why she worked so hard to give a voice to her constituents. Well, Assemblywoman Blanca Rubio, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you. Thank you. How are you this morning? I'm good. It's so nice to see you. And I've been so excited to speak to a fellow Californian, uh, talk to people all over the country, but it's fun to talk to somebody from my own home state. We are talking about six weeks after the end of the legislative session here. And just wondering, I know you had some success with bills. It was a weird time, of course, we had the recall hanging over everything. But tell me how you felt about the legislative session and maybe anything in particular that you were so proud to, uh, to get past this time around. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you today, my fellow Californian. It is uh, quite a different world this year than last year, obviously, and the year before. This pandemic has really done a number on everyone, but um, you know we've been trekking along, trying to figure it out and trying to do the best that we can for our communities. One of the great things about what happened was I think people are a little bit more grounded. Uh, we all kept looking around thinking, ah, is God trying to tell us something? And so I think we were a little bit more connected kind of with our own immediate families. But the, the problem was that we weren't being seen or being out in the community and really talking to people about what their needs are. But, you know, it is what it is at this point. You know, all we can do is for us, hope for the best, you know, overall, but as a public official, try to do everything that I can to make sure that people are receiving services that they need. And, you know, really the basics, roof over their head, food on their table and education for their kids. I have a 14 and 13 year old that were, you know, homeschooled and I, by trade, I am a teacher and I did not understand homeschooling parents when I was teaching. I understand them less now because even though I'm trained, I was ready to kill the kids a couple of times. And, you know, it wasn't a good scenario for either of us. But I think, you know, it helped me really understand what folks are going through on a day to day basis. The challenges I, I'm lucky enough to be able to stay home and do work from home. And, you know, a lot of our community members were not. So it was, you know, 2020 was terrible. 2021, we were 
happy to receive and now it's uh, on its way out again. And I don't think very much changed, to be honest with you. I think the the differences between our class system was more evident in 2020 and 2021 hasn't really been much better for folks. So in the legislature, we were trying to at least offer some, some safety net programs for folks to just get through. The great thing about us not being out um, in full force, I believe, was we were limited to 12 bills each, which is really I didn't really understand until now how exhausting it is to to be running around hearing bills. Just to put it into perspective, in the assembly, we're allowed up to 50 bills per year. And this year we were limited to 12, which was a big, big difference. I think at last night of session, we were done at 9 p.m. and people are looking around going, what's going on? This this is weird because we were done and people are done speaking and we're looking around like, wait, it's only 9 p.m. It's time for us to, you know, I don't know, get into a big old fight or something. And uh, and it, it really didn't happen. And so I think that was one of the good things about the legislative year this time was that we were asked to choose really to choose the best of what we were trying to accomplish and unfortunately some bills were not looked at and i think we have a tendency when we're asked to limit to a certain amount if they ask us for 50 we're going to do 50. if you ask us for 20 we're going to do 20 and so this time around with 12 was a really different because we had to be really particular about what we were going to to introduce i usually do a lot of foster children bills i did did a couple of those that i'm really proud of we do a lot of work with the aging community we had a bill about that and and so for me it was just trying to focus on what really was important for us this year uh, one of my successes and i'm going to brag uh, about it a little bit was uh, i sit on sub one which is the health and human services subcommittee for the state budget and a few years ago we started doing doing work on making food a prescription we didn't call it that but that was kind of the vision is to make food a prescription and so uh, we partnered up did a three-year pilot program and tracked congestive heart failure patients, the statistics were that one in three patients were re-hospitalized within 30 days if they just let them loose without any kind of prescription. Medical prescription, yes, but I mean, food, for example, that was medically tailored for their their ailment. And so we started a three, I partnered up with some organizations and we they did a three-year pilot program following these congestive heart failure patients. In three years, we took them from one in three being rehospitalized to one in 20 being rehospitalized. You know, my my goal for my entire career, which is a 12-year term, was to finally get that passed. And I was so excited to see that the governor put it in the budget this year. So food is a prescription for some folks. And, you know, if you think about long-term effects, that's a huge savings to our medical system. But in the short term, People are food insecure right now as it is because of the pandemic. And, you know, we have high uh, occurrences of of, uh, diabetes, congestive heart failure, heart uh, problems in general. And it's really prevalent in those communities that are low income because they don't have money to buy, you know, our kale salad at uh, Whole Foods that is, you know, $7. And so that's always been um, a barrier for folks. And now that the governor put that provision in the budget, now they're able to access medically tailored foods for their particular ailment, but more than that, for our communities that are food insecure, that serves as their security, that they're going to get the three meals per day as needed. So that was a big win. And it's not hashtagable. I 
I talk about that because my colleagues are, I call it the hashtag mentality. It's really cool to put that hashtag up there, but what I just told you is not hashtagable, but I think it's the biggest, biggest success for me. It was my goal in my 12 year term that I was, you know, uh, that I'm supposed to be here or hopefully get uh, elected every two years, but we did it in five years. And so for me, it's a big, big win. Again, not hashtagable because I can't tell you in, in, in two words what we did, but it's the biggest, I think for me, the biggest win of my career so far, because I think that people are going to benefit from this again, not just for their medical issues, but I think for those fo- folks that are food insecure, now they're guaranteed three meals a day because now it's part of a Medi-Cal program that, that helps them get through their ailments. That's so amazing. Why, why was that such a uh, priority for you going into the legislature? Why was this something that you focused on so much? Well, I, you know, and we'll talk about my story um, later, but I'm an immigrant. I came from from Mexico at a, when I was six years old. My family was deported. We came back to California and the, the neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, being deported and undocumented is synonymous with being poor. That's the reason we left our own country was because there was nothing for us there. And we came to the United States for a better, better life. And for me, growing up in downtown L.A., it's the Pico Union District of L.A., which is by far the most dangerous and probably poorest of, of uh, L.A. County. I saw a lot of, you know, just tragic, tragic situations, not just with gangs, but, you know, just poverty in itself. And I, you know, for me, I feel like the legislature has offered me an opportunity to save me, right? Um, You know, people like me, people like my parents, my dad is 81. He has been in and out of the country since he was 19 because they were just trying to make a life for us. We've been consistently in the United States now for 44 years, but that that stigma and for my father, that that uh, kind of that that uh, wanting to do better has always been part of it. My mom was a housekeeper up until the pandemic, cleaned people's houses. And so so for us, we were blessed enough to have both parents. They worked really hard to make sure that there was always food on the table. But my neighbors, my friends were not as lucky as we were. Uh, and so so the legislature, again, has afforded me an opportunity to save me, to save folks like me, folks like my parents, to really hopefully get them out of that situation that they're in and really take advantage of the American dream and be able to 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 be in the United States and in California in particular and, and really do something with our lives because we left our own country so that we can be better here. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Congratulations. That seems like a huge victory for you. And it's so important for so many people. I mean, you talked about some of the gaps, you know, the, the that were exasperated over the pandemic and just thinking about as we can figure out how we're going to build back better here in California and across the country. Besides healthcare, you mentioned education gaps. I also had kids at home, teenagers at home during the pandemic. I'm so happy they're back in school. Yes. <laughs> you know, an, an unplanned experiment that I don't, you know, the teachers were heroic, but it was rough, I think, for everybody. What else do you put on the top of the list as, as things you're going to be looking for as we come out of the pandemic and try to build a back, not, not back to the old normal where those gaps existed, but to a new normal where we can help more people and invest in more people. What are, what's top of your list in California? 
You know, um, I'm I'm a moderate Democrat, and I have to tell you that um, you know, sitting on these committees on Sub One, for example, has given me the opportunity to help you know with the safety net programs. But I also have to be really cognizant about the fact that businesses are suffering. Without our businesses, we don't have the the surplus budget that we had this year. And I think it's sometimes it's lost um, kind of in the translation because people assume that oh, it's a business, therefore you must be rich, and it's not the case. In my area, I have about 26,000 small businesses. I'm, I'm in LA County, but not LA. And I always do the air quotes to make a point that LA is not the same uh, uh, across the, count, uh, the county. And in my area, in the San Gabriel Valley, we have our dependencies on those small businesses. I represent 11 cities. I think it's 12 school districts and I'll, the, yes, the school districts get their funding from the from the government or from the California budget. However, the the incidentals, for example, the booster clubs depend on the small businesses to to be able to support um, in my area, we have a lot of kids that go to college based on their on grants that they get or scholarships. Well, those scholarships are usually tied to the extracurricular activities that they've done in high school. Band, for example, football, um, baseball, all of those programs that are literally supported by those small businesses. How many times have you gone to a Little League uh, uh, game and it says, you know, uh, $3.99 pizza is a proud sponsor of, you know, so all of those small businesses help support those programs that I, again, the the schools itself are getting the funding from the state, but those different programs are funded through small businesses, through the booster clubs, all the moms and dads that do all of the fundraising for those programs. And we completely lost that during the pandemic. And, you know, it's a gap, not only educationally, but now funding wise, what are those kids that were depending on that scholarship, you know, that football scholarship or that band scholarship going to do that we've been closed for almost two years and they haven't had the opportunity to really go out and and compete for those scholarships. So small businesses are the heart of my district and um, being able to support them and bring them back, bring them back better, I think is what is important. And I think it's not just in California, but it's a national trend that folks are looking for workers. I was driving by yesterday and I saw a billboard. It said Amazon, right? Love them or hate them. Amazon is up there and it says $3,000 bonus and um, hourly wages of, of $22 per hour. The opportunities are out there right now. Everybody's giving incentives to sign up, higher wages to to start working there. I I joke because we didn't have that when I was a kid. I said, if I didn't have a job right now, I would have three because I'd be signing up for all those bonuses and I'd be working at, you know, for $22 an hour. I've been working for a long time. I think my starting wage was $3.10 an hour, right? If I didn't have a job, I'd have three of them right now. I'd be taking advantage of the the incentives. Well, those are great for the bigger companies. My little small um, businesses don't have the ability to give you those incentives and to pay, you know, the high, high wages. They're doing better, obviously. But if I don't support the small businesses, my local high schools are suffering, my local little leagues, the cities depend on those small businesses for their coffers every single year. And, you know, we can do Hopefully the, the the Build Back Better plan will give them um, more funds 
you know, to other local cities, but how are they going to sustain that? The only way they can sustain that is by having a healthy business community that is contributing to the local tax base and for, for us here in Sacramento, contributing to, to our, our state budget so that I can support that medically tailored meal program that I'm so proud of because it all it's all, all paid for by taxes from local taxes, from business taxes, and from personal taxes. And so so building better means a lot of different things to different people. But for me, because of my district, I want to make sure that those businesses are supported. As long as they're healthy, my cities and my school districts are going to be healthy and the state is going to be healthy. Are there specific things that you're either thinking about from the state budget or as you get this infusion from ca- of cash, hopefully from the federal government, either through the American Rescue Plan dollars or hopefully what's coming through the infrastructure bill and other things. Are there specific things that you're hearing from your small businesses that they need in particular to be able to grow in the future? Technology is always going to be an issue. You know that. I mean, I think that's the the wave of the future, right? So technology, a lot of our, our, our small businesses are not able to invest in, you know, technology. I saw a program yesterday. I was reading an article about a new technology company called Toast. It's supposed to be for for restaurants and it has payroll built into their program. So a small restaurant, for example, can do their billing, their ordering, and even their payroll through this one system. Um, It sounded great. I used to be in the restaurant industry once upon a time. I worked at McDonald's. And so I know how critical that is. And I worked in human resources as well. And I I know how difficult it is to have to hire a payroll company and then do, you know, some attorney to help you with your workers' compensation. And so, so having everything in one place, I think, will help our small businesses. The technology Technology infrastructure is one, absolutely, but also training. We need to train people for the jobs that we don't know exist. I was a teacher, I told you, for about 16 years, and uh, I taught kindergarten for three years, and we would go to a conference every year, and the conference was consistent in always telling us that the the jobs that are that kindergarten students are going to do in 20 years have not been invented yet. How do we prepare you know, as as a society, as an educational institution, how do we prepare for those jobs? And for our small businesses, how do they prepare in that evolution? Because, you know, quite frankly, you know, uh, part of the the article also talked about how some of the wait staff is going to be obsolete because now we're using those QR codes to order and to pay. Well, not only do we have to prepare that business for that, but we also have to prepare those folks that are going to be losing their jobs to be able to compete in this new digital world. So, so it's twofold training, obviously the technology infrastructure, but also training those staff members that they, they are hiring to be able to evolve to whatever it is that we're going to be in, in 10, 15, 20 years. And so mainly that, but I think they're looking for training dollars. They're looking for, um, innovative dollars because they also understand that the way we've been doing business is not going to work anymore. And, and so how do we prepare those small businesses to, to grow, but how do we prepare the, the workers to be able to be, technologically savvy or trained well enough to to be able to participate in in the the coming you know evolution of jobs so that's a big deal. There's a lot. There's a lot there. There's a lot of needs there. I think that's fantastic. I, I want to ask you about. You mentioned the, the fact that you work closely with businesses, both in your district in general. I know you're chair of the New Democrats in the yes. in the assembly. Tell uh, listeners who wouldn't know what that is, uh, what that group is about, and what you guys are trying to do. 
Well, for the listeners, let me tell you, there is a moderate group left in California. There's a few of us left in California. When I say moderate Democrats, people are like, what? There's such a thing in California? There is. There's a moderate group of of, of folks of Democrats in California that I uh, am the convener of now. For me and for my group is being able to see the differences between being able to help those folks with the safety net programs that we just talked about, but also being able to help the businesses. Because let me tell you, folks, not every Everybody or every business in California is a multi-billion dollar corporation. That is the assumption because we, you know, we have Silicon Valley, we have all of those, those, those technology companies that are thriving in California and in the United States and the world that are from California, but not everybody really takes uh, is benefiting from that. And so for me to be able to support our small businesses, I just talked about how there I have 26,000 small businesses in my communities. Well, guess what? A lot of folks, 80 assembly members and 40 senators have those same businesses in their communities. And so we need to be able to be moderate, moderate, in the sense of, you know, not all of the the businesses are Elon Musk's businesses. And, you know, the controversy that happens with Elon Musk and with Jeff Bezos, as much as people want to 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 really vilify them, they did something that none of us could do is they 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 reinvent themselves on a consistent basis. And, you know, if we want to take any lessons from them, it's the reinventing part that that I think a lot of our, our business community doesn't have the ability to do, first and foremost, because they don't have, you know, obviously the dollars that they have. But, but those businesses are the bread and butter of my community. And so the moderate Dems are the group that are trying to bring some some uh, moderation to the, the bills that are coming through in Sacramento. I joke and, you know, with all due respect, some of my colleagues are trying to trying to outleft each other, and some of them are trying to outright each other. We have the 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 extreme right that's trying to do the whole President Trump rhetoric, and then we have some of our mind members that are trying to outleft each other. And not you know not everybody in in California has the ability to support my next door neighbor, for example. There was a bill and. And I understand why they're doing it. So please take this for what it is. There was a bill. You could take a leave of absence if your neighbor was sick so that you can take care of your neighbor. Now, think about that. I am on board with family leave. My goodness, Taylor, my my legislative director just got back from, what was it, Taylor? Eight weeks of, of bonding with his brand new baby. And it was amazing. And I'm sure that it was great for him, but it was his own baby. But how... Do you put a bill up that's going to give you family or you can't call it family leave, give you leave because your neighbor is sick? And I was like, I was really confused about that. I don't I still don't understand what the intent was, but that's a little bit extreme in my my uh, opinion. Giving Taylor, my legislative director, the ability to have eight weeks off so he can bond with his baby, that is amazing for me because that is his own child. He's going to raise that child. And, you know, and so so those are the types of issues that that sometimes you you stop and go, uh, you know, let me let us think about that for a minute. And and some of my 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 um colleagues are trying to outleft each other. And I think I shared with you earlier, it's a hashtag mentality. They want to see who gets the best hashtag as opposed to who gets the best policy in place. And the beauty of of, uh, term limits uh, in California, if you're listening from another place, in California, the term limits used to be six years, you could uh, be in the assembly and eight years 
in, in the Senate for a combination of 14 years. So I could be in the assembly, run for Senate and spend eight years as a senator for a total of 14 years. The voters changed that a few years ago. Actually, it's going to be I think 10 years ago, where now you can spend 12 years in the legislature, but you can be 12 years in the assembly, 12 years in the Senate, or a combination thereof. They they shortened the, the term to 12, but now as now I'm an assembly member, I'm the first in my district to be in that 12-year term. I can spend 12 years in my uh, seat. The beauty of that is when you were in office for six years, you can write all of the policies you wanted, but by the time they were implemented or any of the side effects, good or bad, you were already out of office. So so you couldn't be held accountable for that bill. You'd be like, oh, done it. It was done six years ago. I moved on to something different. Now with the 12 year term, guess what? If that policy doesn't work, it's going to come back and bite you during your own term. And now you have to answer for that. And so now we're seeing a lot of Cleanup bills is what what uh, if you really pay attention, there's a lot of cleanup bills that are happening in the legislature because now they figured out, oh, oh, it didn't work and it as intended or it's not going to work as intended. So now we're trying to clean up those bills. And so for the moderate gems, we're trying to make sure that we inject that that long term thinking into our colleagues bills and be like, eh, it sounds great in the short term, but in the long term, we, this is what may happen. And so that's, I think my job, and it's been really, really fun to be able to do that because now I have a lot of uh, past bill experience to, to draw from and be like, Hey, do you remember that bill once upon a time? You know, now I have actual institutional knowledge that I will carry with me for the next seven more years that I have in my term. And so I'm able to say, Hey, we tried that five, six years ago, and it didn't work. And let me tell you why why it didn't work. And this is what happened. And so so having that institutional knowledge back helps. But again, for me as a moderate Democrat, it gives me the opportunity to pull from the bad stuff that we did and say, eh, if it was that great, why are we doing cleanup on that bill? And so the mods are the very small group, but we are trying to be the conscience of the legislature and trying to make sure that the deals that are cut are long-term good ones for our communities, not just hashtagable, feel-good policies that are going to, again, eventually fail. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think people will be interested in that kind of unintended consequence of term limits, right? That lack of yeah. institutional knowledge, the lack of accountability. I think that's a super interesting, interesting point people might not be aware of. The other thing I wanted to make sure I got to on, just on the legislative side, again, I'm a Californian, so I I you know, it's, it makes sense to me, but I was so surprised when I did start doing national politics, how big, relatively speaking, the districts are here in our state, right? So as you well know, you represent, you know, close to half a million people, you are the next biggest state house in the country is Texas. And those are only less than 200,000 people they wow. represent. And the smallest one in New Hampshire, they represent almost three, you know, nearly 3000 people. So wow. you are in such a different ball game as a legislator in the state assembly here representing some people. So how do you think about your ability to stay connected with? I mean, obviously, I've been hearing you talk about the needs of your constituents. You are clearly are connected. But you know, how mm-hmm. do you think about legislating when you have to, to stay connected with and represent so many people in your district? Well, first and foremost is being visible. And, you know, one of the things that I can tell you I'm really proud of, um, I, I uh, have the reputation 
reputation of being one of, if not the hardest working legislator in the state capitol. I have uh, two kids. I have a 14 and 13 year old at home that I still have to try and manage. But so you well know, and those of you that are parents, um, Taylor is on the call with us, is you have to get your stuff done before or after the kids. And so I've been trained by my children and I was a teacher. So I've been trained by all of my children that that if you want something done, you got to give it to a busy person. And so for me, it's really important to stay connected. But I have to also add to that, that I I have, I represent Republicans and Democrats, and I have made it a point to be the representative for everybody. And so I spend a lot, uh, as much time as I do in my, my Democratic cities or my Democratic areas that I do in my Republican cities, because I think it's important for them to also be be represented. I think my first two years, I went to the city of Glendora, uh, Glendora is one of the cities I represent, to their council meeting. And they're looking at me, they're staring at me. And I was like, what, do I have something on my face? Like, what's going on? And they're like, assembly member, we haven't had anybody visit us in 18 years. They hadn't had a representative go to their city council in 18 years because they're not, um, my my district is 65% Democratic. So I'm, and until I want to, if I keep doing a good job, I will keep getting reelected. And there's really no viable candidate because it is such a Democratic area. And so for them to be shocked that I was there was like, wow, that gave me a little perspective uh, other than the Democratic, you know, the Democrat perspective that all of the folks matter. And so I made it a point to visit, you know, even in my my veteran days, veterans days is coming up. I'm going to go to one of the Republican cities and one of the Democratic cities. And, you know, during Christmas, we have all these parades. So I go to one of the Democratic uh, cities um, parades and I go to the Republican parade because I, it's important for them to see a, a person that represents them. But because I am also business business friendly, I do a lot of chamber events. I do a lot of, in, in my area, it's called the, the San Gabriel Valley Economic Partnership, which is kind of like a chamber, but it's a lot of the business community that that um, participates. I do a lot of that. I went to Azusa Pacific University, which is in my district. And so I, I try to do events there a lot. I, I do the commencement speech, um, whatever it is that they need. I meet on a regular basis. I have what I call roundtables. I meet with the city managers for all the cities, the mayors. I meet with the superintendents and in this case with the presidents of the universities. There's only a few of them, but I I like to have breakfast with them or coffee just to see to catch up. And I go on site to visit. So I try to do a lot of that. And the way we we split it up in Sacramento is I call it, you know, we do our legislative business Monday through Thursday. Our, our constituents really, to be honest with you, don't care what we're doing Monday through Thursday. They care only if it's affecting them, right? But other than that, they have no idea what I'm doing Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then we fly home on Thursday night and we spend time on Friday, Saturday, Sunday doing the events with the community. And they're really, really surprised that that I'm that active and they actually know me by first name and I try to to be accessible. I mean, obviously I can't give every, you know, all 500,000 constituents my cell phone number, but my staff is, um, the staff is amazing. They're amazing. They go out and um, are connected with the community. Thanksgiving's coming up uh, last year. On a regular basis, I, I try to do a, a, a turkey giveaway. It had been somewhere about four, 400 to 500 turkeys that we would give away. So naturally, with the pandemic happening last year, I was like, okay, we're going to plan for 1,500. We ended up giving away 2,700 turkeys. 
it was crazy where we, you know, God knew only God knows where we were able to get the 2,700 turkeys. Now, there weren't actual turkeys because that would be too much, but we were scrambling, running around, getting gift cards for folks so that they can pick up a turkey. We partnered with the local food bank so that folks not only got a turkey, they got the fixings, but they also got a, a box of food for the rest of the, the week. We ended up giving away 2,700 and people were still, you know, we had to turn people away at some point, but this year we're doing it again. We're planning for 2,700, but realistically, I think 3,000 is going to be enough. And so we do a lot of that. We do um, backpack giveaways. We do haircuts for folks. We do a health fair. We just did a career fair trying to help businesses recruit folks. So we do a lot of those community events and, and you know, people really do listen. We do. And with technology, obviously, it's a little bit different, too. So we do Facebook outreach. We do mail outreach, you know, the snail mail outreach, constant contact. We do all, all of the social media tools that we that we have. We use them. But literally, I'm out talking to people all the time and folks really appreciate that. And so I've been able to, to, to kind of weave myself into the community. Plus I was a teacher in the city of Baldwin park for about three years. So that community for sure knows me. My kindergarten students are 25 and 26. So I still keep in touch with them on Facebook. One of them, uh, I have to brag because this is a teacher's dream is one of my students called He's a, he went to Arizona State and became a teacher. He's a teacher in Arizona, and he wanted me to do a Zoom uh, for his classroom because now he's 25, and then he introduced me as his kindergarten teacher, and the kids are like, well, how old are you? Which I was really flattered, by the way, because I was like, not, not old enough to be his kindergarten teacher, but the kids were like, what? You were his kindergarten teacher, and he said, the reason I am a teacher today is because she inspired me to be a, a teacher. He was a fifth grade teacher. And so that's a teacher's dream. And, and, you know, he reached out to me, but how many hundreds of kids did I touch while I was a teacher in, in that same way where they were inspired by something that I said or something that I did for them to be um, better, you know, for themselves. And as a legislator, I can, you know, affect, as a teacher, I was able to affect 30 kids per class times, you, you do the math, times 16, right? About 500 kids, right? As a legislator, how many kids can I support or can I affect or how many families can I make a difference for uh, now that I'm in the legislature? So I always go into the district thinking that this could be my father, this could be my mother. My parents, you know, I told you my story about us being immigrants. My parents don't speak English. So every, and I, I'm blessed to be able to speak both languages. So so I'm, I'm on, whether it's in English or Spanish, but when, when I'm in a community event, I don't turn anybody away because that's my dad, that's my mom. That could have been me when I was, you know, that age. I know we didn't get it too much into my story, but but I didn't speak the language when I came to the country. And when I wanted to go to college, and I this is, you know, kind of, I tell this story and a lot of people always line up to talk to me about it. But, but when I was in high school and it wasn't that long ago, look at me, I'm, I'm amazing. My, my, those kids didn't think I was a kindergarten uh, teacher 20 years ago. The counselor literally told me, honey, you're just going to go get pregnant. Why would you want to go to college? Right? So he decided for me what I was to become. And because I, I don't know, maybe because I was an immigrant, maybe because I didn't speak the language really well, maybe because I was a woman, I'll never know. But, but the reality is that, that I want to use this platform 
to be able to tell those kids and those not just kids, because there's a lot of adults that still have that that stigma in their heads that they can't do more to be able to tell my story. I get and Taylor can tell you, I get a at least a half a dozen people always when I speak in line, trying to take a picture or trying to talk to me because they say, I was one of you or, or that happened to me. And I speak to a lot of colleges and universities and I'm mentoring literally like eight um, college students right now. I meet on a regular basis because I always tell them, call me, call me. And when they call me and they get a response and we meet via Zoom on a, on a monthly basis, they, they're shocked. They're like, you're actually meeting with me. It's not your staff. I'm like, no, no, no. I promised that I was going to help you some one way or another. And so that has been literally, I think, the secret to my success, if you want to call it that, is that I sit, I talk to the community and I connect with the community, both because I'm an immigrant and a female and poor. I mean, you know, we can do a whole list of all of these things. But I want to also add that my ego goal and uh, Taylor and many my my chief of staff are working on that. I want to ego ego goal is to do the commencement speech at Belmont High School, where I graduated from, to tell those kids there that somebody there decided that I was not good enough for college for whatever reason. But he decided that I was not good enough for college. But I have an uh, associates of arts degree from East Los Angeles College. I have a business degree from Azusa Pacific University, and I have a master's degree in education from Azusa Pacific University. And but more than anything, I have this office in that small, in that wide building in the middle of Sacramento that. I don't think he even thought I was capable of college, let alone to have an office in Sacramento and be a legislator affecting so many people and hopefully affecting them in a positive way. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're so inspiring. Your story is so inspiring. And obviously, you've got such a passion to help people. I mean, how did you I want, I want I'm going to try to sneak two little questions in here. One, how did you end up in public office? So you, you know, obviously, you were so passionate about being a teacher, but eventually mm-hmm. you decided to run for school board and then eventually assembly. But what was it about public office that spoke to you? Actually, this is my 24th year in office. I was, if you're doing math, I was 12. I joke about that all the time. This is my 24th year in office. I started on a water board and I, w- I did not have a degree then. I, um, I didn't uh, necessarily say, hey, this is where I want to be. I live in Baldwin Park. Baldwin Park is an EPA super fund site. It's the, the kind of the contamination of the San Gabriel Valley is uh, an EPA super fund site. And I was... De- disgusted with the fact that nothing was happening. And so so I would complain. One of my friends was like, well, what are you going to do about it? I was like, I don't know. You know, most of us can complain and really not do anything about it. But but that year, uh, the three seats on the water board became available. And I was like, well, I'm going to do this. Right. And not having any idea what I was getting myself into, the amount of work that it takes to become an elected person or the amount of money, to be quite frank with you. My friend just gave me a list and said, go knock on doors. So I started knocking on doors, starting t- telling people, hey, I want to run for the water board because, you know, uh, there's some contamination. I know I want to help clean up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that started me on a path. And when I was on the water board, um, I was blind to what politics were at that time, but I knew that I uh, I was there for a reason. So so I uh, it was this really 
two really tiny water board called um, Valley County Water Board that serves part of Baldwin Park, a little bit of West Covina and the city of Irwindale. In terms of size, we're really puny. And I make that a point because we were suing uh, Aerojet. Aerojet uh, was uh, found to be responsible for the contamination in my area. So being naive is amazing. So I go to our attorneys and I'm like, well, let's sue Aerojet. And they're like, what do you mean sue them? We don't have that kind of money. I was like, I don't know what kind of money we need, but if they contaminated the the water, they should be able to clean it. And so they they were basically thinking I was insane because I wanted to sue Aerojet. And so I said, well, if we don't do it, then we'll never know what happened. So we ended up filing a lawsuit to um, uh, against Aerojet, and they ended up settling with us for $30 million. We built a treatment facility in Baldwin Park to clean up that that um, that uh, water. But what happened was, though, because we sued them, everybody else went, what? You can sue them? And so Aerojet was sued. And there was nine other, uh, they call them uh, RPs, responsible parties. They sued Aerojet along with nine other organizations that they felt were responsible for the contamination. And they were able to get lifetime money to, to, to be able to clean that water, not just for that being, but forever and ever and ever, right? And so for me, even though it doesn't have Blanca Rubio in, you know, necessarily on that, I was able to begin what I think was the most uh, comprehensive cleanup in, in, in uh, my area, right? And we obviously uh, leveraged the money from EPA to be, you know, to do all of these things. So, so I feel that I was like so naive that I thought I could sue them that everybody was like, what, we can do this? And so once we did it, it affected that, that change, if you will. And so that really gave me, honestly, that's why I think I am who I am today is because I think about it and I go, if I have the guts enough to sue this Aerojet, then there's nothing I can't do, right? And, and my 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 staff is like, really? But but if you if you don't try, my mom always says, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And with Aerojack, we asked, and they gave us money. So wh- how much more can I get? Then you know, you keep asking, and 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 so that started me in politics. I spent eight years on the water board. Then I got my AA, then went to Azusa Pacific University and got a business degree. And I was working in human resources at the school district during a teacher shortage in 2000. My boss was like, okay, you can do this. You know, you have the kind of the empathy and all of that. And I was like, I've never even played school when I was a kid. Why would I become a teacher? And so she was like, look, right now, all they need is a degree and a pulse. And you have both, right? And even though it was a business degree, what I had to do, I had to go back to school. I was blessed enough to go to Azusa Pacific University where the, the master teacher was retiring. And she was like, don't you worry, I'll take care of you. So so the traditional way of getting a credential is you go to school, then you do the student teaching on your own, kind of an internship. Because of the teacher shortage, I was thrown in the, literally I was in, the, in my human resources office on Friday and on Monday I started teaching but with a lot of support because I had never wanted to be a teacher. Like I said, I didn't even play school when I was a kid. My master teacher was there with me for three solid months and I became an amazing teacher because of her, passionate obviously about what the education in that community because that community reflects me in Baldwin Park. Then something, there was the class size reduction was in effect where there was 
20 or less kids in classrooms from kindergarten to third grade. It was a special program that cost obviously a lot of money. Our school board decided that they were going to eliminate the program. So of course I was like, well, I went to speak and say, we can't do this. It's detrimental to our, our young kids, especially those that don't speak the language and they were going to do it anyway. So I was like, all right, well, you're not listening to me this way. I'm going to run for the board. So I ran for school board in Baldwin Park. So I had to, to, a few things happen. I did win. I had to quit my job in Baldwin Park because it was a conflict of interest at the time, you know, now to teach in the district that I'm a board member of. So I had to go find another job. I ended up in Fontana Unified, which was an amazing community as well, just uh, as much need as Baldwin Park. So I was, I felt at home and I was able to help as many kids there as I could in Baldwin Park. So I spent a big chunk of time on the school board while I was teaching. And, you know, eventually the assembly seat became available due to term limits. So I decided, and if there's ladies listening out there, let me tell you, I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Again, how you feel about anything to do with Facebook, completely irrelevant for this conversation. She wrote this book and in the book, what really spoke to me is that women, when we are presented with an opportunity, right? When we're presented with an opportunity, most females, tend to make a list of the reasons why not. Why not? I, had, I was a single mom. I had, a, uh, at the time, a seven and eight-year-old, school-age kids. I was teaching full-time. I was not the party favorite. I was not, to be quite honest, not, not, none of the, the local electeds gave me their support. I had to do this on my own. But women tend to write a list of the reasons why not. I didn't have the support. I didn't this. I didn't that. I didn't. So I had this whole list. After I read Lean In, she, uh, Cheryl Sandberg talks about, no, talk about the reasons why you should. And so I completely changed my mentality and started put, listing all the reasons why I should. It turns out I should... I, I really belong in this seat, A, because of my passion, but the qualifications, we do so much as females, and I know males do too, so no disrespect to the males, but mainly the women are the nurturers of the family, but we do PTA meetings, we do Little League, we do, uh, you know, we're in charge of the snacks and all of that. We forget the network we already have because we've done all of those things, and we discount it as oh, that's just something that I do, as opposed to that is an asset and that's what can get me to the next level because I have all of those connections. When I ran, the moms in my in my district in Baldwin Park were coming over. They didn't speak English and they're like, maestra in Spanish, teacher, I can't knock on doors and, and talk to people, but I can bring you food. I can clean your office. I can bring you water. The folks in Fontana, and Fontana's about... 40 minute drive with traffic, 45 minutes. Those moms and those teachers, my colleagues uh, in Fontana were driving to my district on the weekends to help me knock on doors. The moms, again, dropping off one, that all they could afford was one case of water, but they would drive from Fontana, drop the case of water, help me clean up the office, and then they would go home. And those relationships you don't get by just being idle. Those relationships you earn, we as females earn those relationships because we do the same for our for our female friends and male friends. We we support them when they need, um, you know, somebody pick up their kid. Okay, I can pick them up. Or when you need somebody to, you know, stand in for you at whatever event. We have those relationships already in place. But as females, we don't look that at, at those relationships as assets to get us to 
politics, for example, we think of them as personal relationships. Well, ladies, let me tell you, those relationships are political relationships because nobody knows the community better than those moms that that you know run the 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 little league uh, snack bar. Those moms can do it. Those dads can do it. And so, so when I read that book, I was like, no, I can do this. And it was, trust and believe, it was the most difficult thing I have ever, ever done, especially the raising money. My next class will be about how to raise money. But when, when we go and try to do something, we can be our worst enemies, our own worst enemies, because we talk ourselves out of this. And guess what? It does nobody any good. My opponent, the front runner, could not do half of the job that I've done for my community. And I can tell you that with 100% certainty. The activity, the amount of activities that I, I uh, do, the amount of bills, and my, my staff will tell you, it takes six of them to, to keep up with me. And one day I was, we we're running, when it was pre-pandemic, we're uh, waiting for the elevator. I'm like, forget the elevator, let's go. So I'm running up the stairs and they're like, boss, wait up. They're exhausted. And and I'm, and they're like, and you're wearing heels and you're running up those stairs, right? You know, we do women, men too, but women do what needs to be done to get things done. There's no, it it really is. Well, as a, as a mom, you're speaking to me and I know as women all over the you know country who will listen to this, you're speaking to them. And I, and I do feel like there's been a change that more women are stepping up and deciding they can do it. But it's because of voices like yours, frankly, that they're hearing that and you're yes. telling them it's, that they can do it and, the, and therefore they're doing it. So I want to thank you for that. And I yes. before I lose you, I have to at least acknowledge there's another reason that you are historic, which is that your sister, you are the first yes. one of two sisters to serve in the California legislature. She was elected after you to the Senate. And I just I wanted to acknowledge that and just ask you how, you know, how amazing is it to be serving alongside your sister? Well, first and foremost, you know, just the fact that we were undocumented and deported as kids, that in itself, you know, I'm the first legislator to sit in the legislature that has been deported. My sister has been the second one. I, and I always do that because, you know, and, and there's still so, uh, uh, sibling rivalry. And I was the first sister, just FYI. Uh, Right. And uh, but but to have her there for, again, first, the historic nature of us being undocumented and deported, um, but to never have uh, two sisters serve the, in the legislature was like unreal. People mistake and say concurrently. No, no, we're not talking concurrent. We're talking ever. And the reason is because there has been forty five hundred male legislators in the history of California, and there's 178 women that have been in the legislature in California. So just the numbers itself, it's, it, you know, kind of doesn't lend itself to for sisters, but it was amazing. And my dad, I, I speak of my dad and my mom, you know, being in and out of the country. When my sister was elected and we were being sworn in, first I was upset because both swearing ins were at noon and one's in the Senate, one's in the assembly. And I was like, mom, dad, where are you going? And they're like, well, we already did you. We're going to go with her today. I was like really upset. Cause I was like, well, that's not fair. Um, but we're walking to the, to the Capitol and, and it was dark and the, the Capitol is illuminated. And my dad looks up and with tears in his eyes, he says, I never imagined in Spanish, of course, cause he doesn't speak English. I never imagined being in, in Sacramento, let alone for these reasons. And he was so moved and he was just like, my two daughters are are, are sitting members of this fifth largest economy in the world. Of course, he didn't say that, but he, you know, that's what he meant. But for him, it was just so emotional. And for me, it was like, 
wow, it's so cool. And so so the the bad parts about it is they call me Senator Blanca Rubio or they call her assembly member. You know, they confuse us all the time. Even this is her third year, even now. But you know what the most amazing thing is that I have a partner, a true partner in, in the Senate. And I don't want to give away too many of our secrets, but you, you and your siblings have this. I can guarantee it. When you look at each other and you know exactly what you're thinking and what you're talking. So without even having to say anything to her, I know exactly what's going on. And people are like, stop that. I said, what? We didn't do anything. But we know you talk to each other with your eyes. Stop it. You know, because they know that we're plotting. Right. Because we, we've known each other. You know, we're siblings. Siblings have that extra connection. Right. And so it's really been amazing. And to be able to to quite frankly rest once in a while because she overlaps my district and and so people will be like oh my god you're everywhere i saw you in this city and i'm thinking oh of course anything for my community and i'm like that's not my city that's susan's city right but but our social media is crazy because between her social media and my social media people think we're you know, there's only one. And so we're at 10 different events in one day. And so that kind of helps because I'm like, okay, sister, I'm I'm sitting this one out. It's all you today. Or she'll be like, okay, I'm not going to this. You go to that. So we have a representative, a Rubio representative, and it helps us with the community. Um, but more than that, to be able to, to say that I have her and we did live together for two years. We were roommates. She finally moved out. But, but my kids were able, my kids are in Sacramento, by the way, but my kids were able to to be with their aunt for two years on a daily basis, well, four days a week anyway. And so we were able to support each other then. Um, we support each other legislatively. And again, and I joke and I tell people this, and I can still beat her up. So <laughs> if she doesn't do what I say, I can beat her up or I can tell my mom and dad to help out with that. And so, you know, we use it for fun, but it's really, really amazing. You know, I have an automatic, you know how it works on both houses in the Senate and the assembly, when we swap bills, we need to find a, what we call a floor manager in the assembly and the Senate, we call it a jockey. So it's it's an automatic jockey. If I need somebody, I'm like, sister, you're doing this. Even if she doesn't want to, I'm like, oh no, no, you're doing this or the same the other way. We try to spread the, the love and we do find other floor managers depending on the issue. But when we're in, in that bind, I'm like, you're doing this, okay? And she's like, all right, I'll do it. And so we have, you know, the, the bond as sisters, but but um, respect for each other as legislators. And, you know, quite frankly, we don't always agree, but but at least I know I can trust her opinion and she can trust mine. Love it. Well, you're lucky to have each other and the community's lucky to have both of you. So I so appreciate you spending some time with us today, getting to know you and uh, just thank you for the work that you're doing in this really important time and the, and the amazingly inspirational voice that you're giving to so many women and Latinas and others around the country. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for having me again. I can do part two with the fundraising bit the next Take time. Take you up on that next time. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.